In episode two, we talked about the extraordinary lyricism of A Midsummer Night's Dream and the way it mixes humour with some surprising dark undertones, especially around friendship and love. In this episode, we speak with Tiffany Stern, Professor of Shakespeare and Early Modern Drama at the Shakespeare Institute in Stratford, about the moments in the play that particularly dramatise these points. Our first speech comes from Act Two, after Titania has described all the chaos in the natural world that has resulted from the discord between herself and Oberon. Oberon tells her she can mend this quarrel just by giving him the young Indian boy that she has taken charge of. In this speech, Titania explains why she will not give up the boy. Set your heart at rest. The fairyland buys not the child of me. His mother was a votress of my order. And in the spiced Indian air by night, full often hath she gossiped by my side and sat with me on Neptune's yellow sands, marking the embarked traitors on the flood, when we have laughed to see the sails conceive and grow big-bellied with the wanton wind, which she, with pretty and with swimming gait, following her womb, then rich with my young squire, would imitate and sail upon the land to fetch me trifles and return again, as from a voyage, rich with merchandise. But she, being mortal, of that boy did die. And for her sake do I rear up her boy, and for her sake I will not part with him. So this is a speech. Um in which Titania explains the backstory to the Indian boy that she has acquired and loves. Uh, or so it seems at this moment. But I'm interested in how it starts by saying, the fairyland buys, not the child of me. And I'm interested in the term buys because this is strangely mercantile. This is to do with merchandising. And actually, a lot of this speech is to do with merchandising. So... Um, Titania talks of how uh, she and her votaress, uh, then pregnant with this little boy, used to sit together marking the embarked traders on the flood, which is to say um, observing uh, the trading boats on the sea. So there we have trade again, buying the child, uh, the background of she and the pregnant mother watching the traders. Um, and then uh, the pregnant mother would bring her gifts uh, as from a voyage rich with merchandise, so as though she were a returning ship. So throughout this speech, there is oddly the language of merchandising. Um, I think that's one of the key things about the speech and one of the um, awkward things about the speech, uh, not least because we're talking about India and the spiced Indian air. India, uh, the home of spices that were coming to England, exotic spices. Um, and, and here we're seeing the association between India and trading. Uh, now, what later happens is the, the Dutch East Indian Company is, is set up, uh, 
just for such trading. But here, firstly, we see the connection between India and trade. And then secondly, we see the connection between the little boy and 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 trade. Uh, on one level, this says something a little bleak about the kind of colonialization that uh, uh, that uh, that we were embarking on, um, uh, all driven by merchandise. And on another, we see a little boy who um, both Oberon and Titania will will fight to own him, and kind of they're fighting to own that bit of exotic merchandise. So he horrifyingly becomes a bit like one of the other traded goods. Another thing I find interesting in in the speech is the source of the humour between Titania and the votress. When we have laughed to see the sails conceive and grow big-bellied with the wanton wind. So they sat together and they laughed because the sails were getting filled with wind and it looked like they were pregnant. And you think, oh, that's, well, that's quite weird. It's quite weird to see boats and immediately think that they're conceiving with the wind. That's, that's going to a very naughty place quite quickly. <laughs> and only then, having heard about all of that, are we told that she, the votress, with pretty and with swimming gait, following her womb, then rich with my young squire, would imitate. So then we're told the source of the humour is, in fact, that she too is pregnant and she'll pretend to go swimming along the shore um, and she'll imitate a boat and it'll be hilarious because the boats are pregnant and she is pregnant. Um, So, (laughs) as I say, you know, some jokes are better than others, but um, we are put here that the metaphor of the pregnant boat which we then see uh, this ties in both with the merchandising, you know, it's going to it's going to team with money. Um, but it also ties in with the theme of pregnancy, which sits very oddly on this play more generally. Uh, more generally because Titania and Oberon are fighting for a little, for the little boy who is born uh, as a result of this, and they don't seem to have any kids of their own. So there is their lack of pre- of. Uh, of their own children. And the bigger story itself will end with all the lovers in the marriage bed, in their marriage beds for their marriage nights. And we're told that at least one of them is going to conceive and, and that various wishes are made for the pregnancies that will then ensue. So pregnancy is a theme throughout this play. And here it is. And it interestingly goes boat first, then the laughing women one of whom we now learn is pregnant. And shortly after we learn she is hilariously pregnant, then in a sentence we learn, but she being mortal, of that boy did die. And you're sort of, oh my word. We had a friendship, two laughing ladies on the shore, but one was mortal and childbirth actually killed her. And that's a little horrifying vignette in what seemed like a charming story. And I quite like, um, in modern punctuation, we put it between commas, being mortal. But she, being mortal, of that boy did die. This is being spoken by Titania, who is not mortal, so she herself doesn't die. Uh, But a mortal person can die of childbirth. That did indeed happen here. And that also throws something rather strange onto us, the audience, because we are also mortal and we will also die. Um, And 
So this story, which is a story of pregnancy and life, is also a story of mortality and death. And all that is here in this speech as well. And then we end up with the insistent, and for her sake do I rear up her boy, and for her sake I will not part with him. Ends on him, boy and him, the two ends of those lines. For her sake, the two beginnings of those lines. We feel very powerfully that she loves this woman. As a consequence, she loves this boy. She wants this boy. And she'll look after the boy as a memento of that extraordinary friendship. Now, the fact that in the play, she then hands over the boy to her husband um, uh, once they get over their quarrel, uh, this speech, remembering this speech, makes that moment more horrific and raises more questions about the strangeness of this friendship here, which, as I say, is always uh, uh, put in rather mercantile terms. Our next speech comes from Act 5. Oberon has removed the flower's magic from Titania's eyes so that she no longer loves the ass-headed Bottom. Puck has restored Bottom to normal and Titania has gone off and left Bottom asleep. Now he wakes up and starts to ponder what has happened. Or, he wonders, did it only happen in a dream? When my cue comes, call me and I will answer. <coughs> my next is most fair pyramus. Oh. Peter Quentin. Flute the bellows mender. Snout the tinker. Starling. God's my life stolen hence and left me asleep. I've had a most rare vision. I've had a dream. Past the wit of man to say what dream it was. Man is but an ass. If we go about to expound this dream, <laughs> me thought I was. <laughs> there is no man can tell what. Me thought I was. And me thought I had. But man is but a patched fool if he will offer to say what me thought I had. <laughs> the eye of man hath not heard, the ear of man hath not seen. Man's hand is not able to taste, his tongue to conceive, nor his heart to report what my dream was. I will get Peter Quince to write a ballad of this dream. It shall be called Bottom's Dream, because it hath no bottom. And I will sing it in the latter end of a play before the Duke. Her adventure, to make it more gracious, I shall sing it at her death. So this is a speech when Bottom wakes up from what he thinks has been a dream. Uh, what he thinks he dreamt is that he had an ass's head and made love to the Queen of the Fairies in that form. Now, we know that that wasn't a dream that did, in fact, happen. <laughs> However, he wakes up and the first thing he says is, when my cue comes, call me and I will answer. He is thinking back to his rehearsal. He's waiting for the three words that will precede his speech. And he's waiting for the three words, most fair pyramus. 
this is hilarious on a number of levels. Uh, one is that um, uh, his dream is reality. He really has been at a rehearsal. Um, uh, and another is that his cue will be most fair Pyramus, very beautiful Pyramus. And we've just seen him being an ass, um, uh, you know, uh, notably, ridiculously ugly. So that is funny. Hey-ho. Hey-ho uh, is a transliteration of how a sigh sounds. But here it is funnier still because as Bottom was an ass, then he can also go hey-ho in a kind of, you know, donkey-like assy way. So it's kind of both a sigh and and he's still got a bit of donkey in him. Okay. Then... Uh, he says, I've had the mo a most rare vision. I've had a dream past wit of man to say what dream it was. He can't make sense of the dream he's had. Now, this is actually one of the themes of the whole play. Um, which bits of the play are dreams and whose dream is this play? Is it our dream? Is it my dream? Um, uh, so we see Bottom struggling with one of the themes of the play, his strange, strange dream. And then he says, and these are all kind of funny internal references, like hey-ho, man is but an ass if he go about to expand this dream. We thought I was. There is no man can tell what. We thought I was and we thought I had. Um, people act this in various different ways. We thought I was and we thought I had. So he thought he was an ass. We thought I had. And then an actor can choose which bit of himself to touch to indicate what he... So... Uh, a more Victorian-leaning actor will go, me thought I had, and touch his head because he thought he had big ears. Uh, but, oh, no, I don't have big ears anymore. Thank goodness for that. Um, a naughtier actor will touch himself lower down. I thought I had a great bigger... Oh, well. Oh, well. Oh, well. <laughs> that was just a dream. Then what's weird is he goes uh, into this little bit of synesthesia. Uh, synesthesia when you muddle one sense with another sense. The eye of man has not heard. The ear of man has not seen. The hand is not able to taste, his tongue to conceive, nor his heart to report. On one level, that's all jokes. That is funny. But on, on a second level, that's what Midsummer Night's Dream is about. It's about sensory confusion. The play um, uh, appeals to the emotions, but muddles the way you rationalise them. But a third thing, which is intensely odd, is that this is also a bit of a muddled reference to Corinthians. Uh, the, eye, the eye hath not seen and the ear hath not heard, neither have entered into the heart of man. The things which God hath prepared for them that love him. Uh, so why on earth are we getting a sudden, confused biblical reference here. We have been in this play far, far, far away from Christianity and the land of fairies and, and cupids and and strange bits of Greek mythology and suddenly, but, but not in clear form, in confused form, we've got something that reminds us of St. Paul. Um, so I think this funny speech is also meant... Um, meant to have depth that we might not quite have expected. It asks us actually about the dream theme of the play. Um, it brings us to Christianity when we're about to think about 
uh, marriage. Um, and then finally, it's got this nice end to the speech. Uh, I will get Peter Quince to write a ballad of this dream. It shall be called Bottom's Dream because it has no bottom. Um, so the playwright, Peter Quince is the prompter and it seems the playwright of the internal play in the play that we've been watching. Now he'll be asked also to write a ballad um, of Bottom's Dream. I think this is product placement. I think the theatre does actually sell uh, this uh, ballad of Bottom's Dream. Um, uh, particularly as Bottom says uh, that he'll sing it in the latter end of a play. Actually, in the latter end of the play, they don't. Uh, they put on their play in a play and then they dance a burger mask. But that means that the latter end of the play is the latter end of the play of Midsummer Night's Dream, where uh, we can perhaps buy this ballad as we go out of the theatre. Um, I'm also intrigued at the very end of the play, of the, this speech, um, where he says, to make it the more gracious, I'll, I shall sing his ballad um, uh, at the death uh, um, of, uh, of this bee in, in the play. I'm quite interested that we get death in there. We get the Bible in there and we get death in there. So in this light-hearted, prosy, easy, funny speech, we get some of the more trenchant and serious themes strangely confusedly in there. And we could say the same of the play in the play, which also has serious themes in a funny way. So I think this speech does a lot more work than we might have thought to identify and crystallise some of the themes and to throw the business of working them out back onto us, the audience. Lastly, we have the final two speeches of the play. The performance of Pyramus and Thisbe has ended, the lovers have gone off to bed to enjoy their wedding nights, and Puck, Oberon, Titania and the fairies have arrived on stage to bless the couple's beds and to bid goodbye to the audience. Now, until the break of day... Through this house each fairy stray. To the best bride bed will we, which by us shall blessed be, and the issue there create ever shall be fortunate. So shall all the couples three ever true in loving be, and the blots of nature's hand shall not in their issue stand. Never mole, hair lip, nor scar, nor mark prodigious such as our despised nativity shall upon their children be. With this field due, consecrate, every fairy take his gate, and each several chamber bless through this palace with sweet peace. And the owner of it blessed ever shall in safety rest. Trip away, make no stay, meet me all by break of day. If we shadows have offended, think but this, and all is mended that you have but slumbered here while these visions did appear and this weak and idle theme no more yielding but a dream gentles do not reprehend if you pardon we will mend and as i am an honest puck if we have unearned luck now to scape the serpent's tongue we will make amends ere long else the puck a liar call so good night Unto you all, give me your hands, if we be friends, and Robin shall restore amends.
The first thing I want to say is that it's form. It's not iambic pentameter, which is what we associate very much uh, with Shakespeare, but it, um, it's trochaic tetrameter. That is to say, uh, it has four stresses, tetrameter, rather than five stresses in each line, pentameter. And uh, the stress is on the first syllable rather than the second now until the break of day, through this house each fairy stray. Uh, this has been identified as a kind of fairy sound. Uh, in this play, Shakespeare is interestingly giving different uh, different characters different ways of speaking. Uh, this seems to be a fairy way of speaking, rhyming and speaking in this particular form. So it's already a bit magical. And this is what Oberon says he'll do, but it's quite interesting. Um, he asks all the fairies to go about the house bestowing blessings. And he says, to the best bride bed will we, which by us shall blessed be. So you fairies all bless the other bridal beds. Um, and these are the beds where the marital couples are having sex. I will, uh, I will bless the best one myself. Um, and that makes us ask, which of these couples is therefore the best one? Is the best one Theseus and Hippolyta because they are the most elevated? Or is the best one Hermia and Lysander because they were naturally in love before the play started? They're the only actual love couple, given that Theseus has forced Hippolyta. So I quite like the way this blessing also asks some questions. Um, Oberon then goes on. He's still talking about the best bride bed, the one, the one he himself is blessing. And this is what he will bring about. The issue they create ever shall be fortunate. So, uh, as he blesses the bridal bed, so there'll be a very fortunate kid, um, uh, born. Uh, so shall all the couples three ever true and loving be. Now, um, he says that because of these fairy blessings, all three couples will have true love forever. Uh, what's problematic about that is that Oberon and Titania, we've seen in the play, they do not have a true love marriage. So can they bestow it when they can't have it? I mean, maybe they're fairies, maybe they can do anything. But we also haven't, of the three couples, as I say, only Hermia and Lysander uh, ha seem to have a comfortable, genuine sort of love match. One of those couples, Demetrius, still has juice on his eyes to keep him in love. So it, it wasn't genuine to him. So do we trust this true love ending? Then uh, here's an unfortunate bit uh, where Oberon returns to the issue. And part of the blessing is that the issue will not have any deformities. Mole, hair lip, scar, prodigious mark, a birthmark, such as are despised in nativity, shall upon their children be. So they won't have anything awful and despised, uh, uh, like any kind of uh, uh, birth defect. I think these days we find that a little bit tricky. Um, uh, particularly the idea that if you have them, then, then you'd be kind of despised. And he's sort of, thank goodness I'm a fairy, I can make sure that, that none of that happens. Uh, what I do think is interesting, though, quite apart from our modern sensitivity, is that there are um, 
there are three lines focusing on the terrible things that your children won't have, which actually makes those things, the defects, quite a focus of that speech. So as I say that the speech certainly says, I'm going to bless everyone and their children will be great. But when we read the speech, we may not take out of it quite that. We may think that the speech is more problematic than it thinks it is. Now the fictional story is over, we have the epilogue. And the purpose of an epilogue at the end of a play was basically this, that um, uh, that the epilogue tries to force the audience to applaud the play. So Puck here speaks the epilogue, but Puck is partly Puck, but partly an actor playing Puck, in that he says, if we shadows have offended. So now, are we shadows, we fairies? Or are we shadows, we actors pretending to be fairies in this play? And he's also directly addressing the audience. This is actually to you and me. If we've offended, then think this, that you have but slumbered here while these visions did appear. Look, if you don't like the play, just basically you were asleep. <laughs> um, so he addresses you and says something very strange. Uh, that he says, Midsummer Night's Dream was your dream. But he also says, that's only the case if you didn't like the play. If you did like the play, then, then it was the play. <laughs> so actually he does something very odd about, well, was that my dream or not? Who, whose dream was it? <laughs> so he does all of that while addressing us. Do not reprehend, you know, Gentles, do not repent. Don't don't be nasty. <laughs> if you pardon, we will mend. If you pardon this play, forgive it, let it pass. We'll make it better. Um, which is a and and that's um, epilogues were generally spoken after a first performance when you didn't know if the play would take, if the audience would approve it or not, and if it didn't take, you'd never perform it again, and you'd have wasted lots of time and money putting that production together. So another thing he's saying, uh, literally as an actor uh, addressing an audience, is kind of, look, if you sort of liked it, but you didn't love it, we, we will make it better. And that would also be a good reason for you, A, to applaud it and B, to come back. Give me your hands if we be friends and Robin shall restore amends. So on a friend level, give me your hand, let's shake hands. But on a guide to audience level, come on, give me your applause. Give me your hands and I'll make everything okay. I'm a fairy. I'll magic everything better. So maybe now the mending, having said, look, as a, the playwright will mend the play, he's kind of saying, you know, I'll do the same magic like Oberyn has just done. I'll just make everything good. Uh, as I say, in the play itself, we haven't been sure that the fairies always make everything good. But this is a great feel-good way uh, to leave the theatre, having heartily applauded Midsummer Night's Dream. Shakespeare for All is written and produced by Maria Devlin McNair. Executive producer is Zachary Davis. Associate producer and narrator is Gemma Deer. Original music and sound design is by Jack Pombriand. For this course, information was drawn from and ideas were inspired by the following sources. Marjorie Garber's Shakespeare After All. Catherine Belsey's A Midsummer Night's Dream, A Modern Perspective. Emma Smith's This is Shakespeare 
and the 2016 Norton Shakespeare edition of A Midsummer Night's Dream. For full details on these sources, see our course webpage at shakespeareforall.com. This episode featured performances from the following actors. Amanda Harris for Titiana, Set Your Heart at Rest. Dame Harriet Walter for Bottom, When My Cue Comes. Kelly Hunter for Oberon and Puck, Now Until the Break of Day. Shakespeare for All is a Lyceum original production and available exclusively on Himalaya Learning. You can gain access to the full course by going to Himalaya.com Shakespeare. Thank you for listening. See you next time.